All right. Hey, thank you again so much, Greg and worship team. And uh, again, thanks for your singing and your part so far this morning. Well, you have joined us in part seven of seven of a series we've called God for the Grown-Up. It's great to see you uh, back here. Thanks for finishing this series with us. If this is your first time here in this series, welcome to the end of the book. You just cheated and got to the very end without reading the whole thing. So you're going to get a complete summary in, in, a, in a, just a few minutes. Hey, we started this series with the general premise of this subtitle that a childlike faith doesn't require a childlike God. And in fact, if you have a child like God, you're going to end up not even having a faith at all. So we, we talked about that, and we, we said to the beginning that we want to kind of clear the brush away from some misconceptions about who God is. We did that early on in the series. And then I tried to introduce to you a definition of God as being simple, simply this. God is love near and far. Talking about his nearness, his imminence, and his transcendence, his bigness. And then we went into some difficult questions. We asked some questions like, if that definition is true and God is love near and far, how can you say that in the world where evil and suffering exists? Can you really legitimately, with intellectual credibility, say that? And we follow that up with a question of, okay, if we live in a scientific world, can a supernatural God exist in that world? Last week, Pastor Kevin took us through the first and last turn in this series, and that is this. The turn was... We have these ideas about God, and if the God is so big and so vast that we covered in particularly in the scientific one, if he's created 100 billion galaxies, right, and if our blood cells are reproducing at the rate of 2 to 10 million red blood cells a second, if God is so big that he can handle all that stuff, is he also near? Like, it's one thing to recognize the vastness of God, but the vastness of God requires nothing from me other than to recognize its awesomeness. But what if God is also near and close? All of a sudden, if that is true, I have a moral responsibility to something, not just a recognition of something great and powerful in the universe. And so if God is near, the question is this, how can we know God? Like, how can we know this God who has created everything. And last week, Kevin kind of took us into, and he kind of turned that left corner in the series into trying to answer that question with the first answer. Today, I'm going to go to part two, but his answer last week was this. First, we know God by engaging him through the Bible. And Kevin kind of laid out, imagine that the God of the entire universe, this God who has created it all, the vastness and the smallness of it, actually wants to communicate to you. And he wants to do that through the scriptures. And Kevin tried to, with you, kind of break out, if you've ever been stuck into the feeling that the Bible for the Christian is like required reading, tried to break that apart and say, it's not required reading, it's an opportunity, a gift, to engage in God. And so if you are wondering, is there a God when things really seem to be going extremely hard? There's a story of a man named Joseph talking about the faithfulness of God, tracking with him. If you're a young woman growing up in this world and wondering, what are my limits and does God really handle my interest in a world that is often male-dominated and often has men who abuse their power and authority? You know, there's a story in the Bible about a woman named Deborah. There's also a story about a woman named Esther. There's also a story about a woman named Ruth. And we can go on about Jesus' interaction with women. Like the scriptures lay out for us people who engage with God with the very interests and concerns of their heart. And so Kevin tried to help us see again last week, how do we know this God? Seeing the Bible as less than required reading and a gift to us is one way to engage this God of the universe. Okay? Now, this week I want to take you one step further and go a little bit further with that and say there's another key way in which God wants to make himself known. Now, before I get into that, I have a very, very, very important question. Okay? So if you've already kind of gone to thinking about what's for lunch, bring it right back here for a minute because this question is super important and I need your help with it. Okay? Because we're going to actually have some like 
play a long time as an audience, as a congregation this morning. Okay, here's, here's a question. How would you, you're going to have to do this, by the way, how would you help a five-year-old boy understand that someday he might fall in love with a girl and want to marry her? Okay? I actually do want you to answer that question. I want you to turn to a friend, a partner, someone near you, and answer that question. How would you help a five-year-old boy understand that someday he might, just might, fall in love with a girl and want to marry her? Ew! Ew! Cooties. Okay. 30 seconds. Go. Got it? There was a, I wish you could have seen your faces from where I was. There was a lot of smiling and laughter here. This is a difficult thing, isn't it? The, the challenge is palpable here. I mean, this is a big deal. How in the world would you convince a five-year-old boy that at some point, believe it or not, little Johnny, you're going to actually like the girls that you now hate? You know, what would that actually look like? Now, I would love to hear all your answers. So you can tell me afterwards, okay? I'd love to hear that. But here, here's, here's a challenge. The problem for Johnny, five-year-old, is that right now, he generally doesn't have the capacity to understand something that is true. Like, he's hanging out over here, and what you're trying to communicate to Johnny, if you're older than five, and you know this may actually happen to him, you are over here in your comprehension and your categories and your ability to process. So Johnny's hanging out over here, he's fine, but there's something yet to come that's totally true for him, but he doesn't yet have the categories for it and probably doesn't even believe you. Imagine what it's like to be God trying to communicate who he is to people like us. Imagine the limitlessness of God trying to figure out these five-year-olds don't have the capacity to understand something that is yet true but I want to draw them in. How would he do that? How would he help us see something about himself that's true, that's beyond the category that we have? We often conceive of God as the most noblest of our highest ethical standards. In other words, God must be all that is true, or all that is good, or all that's beautiful, like the best of all that must be God, just true, but it's not enough to worship absolute values. In fact, they're too squishy, they're too abstract, that doesn't really do anything for us. If I tried to convince Johnny, Johnny, this will be the greatest feeling you'll ever have of absolute love. Whatever. 
Like, I don't think so. Like, I don't respond to that. However, if I were to say to Johnny, Johnny, you know how you feel about Lightning McQueen? Or about getting an extra cookie after dinner? Like, you know that feeling? Remember when you got the bike for Christmas? Like, remember that feeling? Is going to be better. I don't think so, says Johnny. <laughs> but love focused is something I can react to. What if God were to say, I want to take all of my attributes, all of my character, all of my goodness, beauty, truth, and strength, and focus it to give people over here something they can understand. And by seeing this, begin to get a glimpse of knowing me. What if God were to focus all of his attributes down to give us a gift that we can look at and say, now I have the best picture of knowing God that I could ever possibly have. And this is exactly what I think and what Christians throughout centuries believe that God did in what Christians call the incarnation, making God in human flesh. In other words, sending to us and sending to this planet Jesus. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, The Son, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. That God, in the vastness of who he is, in the magnificence of who he is, in trying to communicate to people like us who don't yet have the category to comprehend who he fully is, says, you know what? The only way for me to focus my love and attention on these people is to focus myself to them and bring myself, if you will, down to help them understand. So I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to come and walk among and be with them. Enter Jesus, who's the exact representation of his being. Now, Christians for centuries and centuries have believed that this is true, that Jesus Christ is God himself and God in human flesh. This presents a number of problems, if we're honest. This is a difficult concept to imagine the scope of God being brought down to humanity. And in fact, it wasn't a problem just for Christians for centuries. It was actually a problem for the disciples on the ground at the very moment that Jesus was interacting with. Imagine trying to explain this to people who have no category for it at all. If you have a Bible, you've been around church a while, this is probably not new news to you. Maybe you're seeing it in a slightly different way this morning, but this isn't new. But for some people, this was brand new, and that is for the disciples. And so I want to take you to a passage in the Scriptures this morning in which Jesus is introducing this idea to his disciples. And he's showing to them, hey, this is who I am. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John in the New Testament. Should be about two thirds of the way through your Bible. You're welcome to um, look up in the table of contents where that is. In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, then Luke, then John. Uh, and by the way, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible in the pew is our gift to you. But in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, we see Jesus interacting with his disciples. And I want to take you there because it's very intriguing how he begins to talk 
about who he really is in relation to the Father. Okay? John chapter 14, I'm reading from what they call the New International Version, NIV. John chapter 14, beginning of verse 1. And here we go. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Starting in, we know that these disciples are anxious. There is something bothering them. And so he says right away, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he gives an immediate solution. He says, trust in God. That's simple. Like this is what the disciples already would have heard. Trust in God. And then he adds this, trust also in me. You see that in your text? He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Here's what you do when your hearts are troubled. You know the solution is trust in God. And then he adds, trust also in me. This is new. It's common for the Jews to have heard this, put your trust in Yahweh, put your trust in God. That makes sense. I have a category for that. And then he says, trust also in me. Now, at first glance, it could say, wait a minute, are these two different things? Like, Jesus, are you saying trust God and also trust me? Like, are you trying to highlight the difference, saying you're not God? You should trust in God, but by the way, also trust in me? Or are you saying this, and this is what I think he's saying, take the trust that you normally give to God when your hearts are troubled and give that also to me. That is brand new. When your hearts are troubled, he says to his disciples, you know what to do. You trust in God. That's what all Jews do who are good. Like You just do that. I'm going to introduce something new to you. Take the kind and the quality of trust that you give to God in your prayers and your confidence that he is sovereign and he will see it through. Take that trust, and let me introduce to you, give that, give that to me. Trust also in me. And then he explains why. He says in verse 2, because in my father's room, my father's house, excuse me, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. <laughs> you ever have that kid in class who asks the question that no one else will ask? Well, that is what Thomas does right now. Thomas is like, ah, uh, wait a minute. Question, Jesus I don't know where you're going, and how am I supposed to get to where you're going because I don't know where that is. And so that's what he says in verse 5. Excuse me, Jesus, hold on. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus responds with one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. And he says, Jesus answered, Thomas, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, you know the way. I'm the way. God has focused his love for you into me so that when you know me, you will know the Father. If you really knew me, he said, verse 7, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thomas, disciples, listen. 
you have seen the Father. You know, all that trust you used to put in God, the abstract, the invisible, I'm here now. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Philip, kind of emboldened by Thomas's question, he has a question, more of a statement, and he's like, uh, okay, now remember, they don't have a category for this. This is new for them. Philip says in verse 8, Lord, uh, show us the Father, and that'll be enough uh, for us. Like, you're talking about, just, do you have the Father somewhere? Is he in the back room? Where, where is the Father? Because I'm confused. I mean, you are here. You're going to his house. We know the way because of you, but you said we've seen the Father because of you, but I don't know about that. Like, just if you could help me out here, Jesus, just show me the Father, okay? And that'll be like, that'll be fine. I don't need any more. Just show me the Father, and that will be, that'll be enough. That'll be enough for us. We won't need any more. It's a simple, simple request. Verse 9. So Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, then he makes this incredible statement. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And he concludes with this in verse 11. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or, if that's too hard, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Like if you don't believe my words, because this is such a new concept, and I get it, Philip, this is new, it's hard to understand. But if you don't get this, that's okay. But at least, at least, Philip, Look around and see what has been done. And at least consider the miracles. And consider, is that something that just an ordinary person would be able to do? Or does that require supernatural intervention from the creator of the world to reorder the world as he sees fit, when he sees fit? At least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves, so Jesus introduces to his disciples in this moment, guys, I am more than just a miracle worker. I am the embodiment of the very God that you've been taught to trust from little on up, as we say. And God has focused his attention and energies on me so that anyone can come to the Father through me. Now, now here's the question with this, okay? If this is true, if it's true that Jesus is actually God and God of the universe has focused his energies down on me, here's the the legitimate question on this God for the Grown-Up series. How can I know God through Jesus? Like, what does that actually mean? Because we're talking now about a, a man who no longer walks the planet, who died, 
Christians believe was resurrected. Christians also believe ascended into heaven. And so I can't go to Jesus as I can go to my friends here, as I can have a conversation with you after I'm done here this morning. Like I can't do that in that way. And so legitimately, what does this mean that I can know God through Jesus? Like, is this some kind of spiritual mystical thing? Like, is that a feeling that I'll get if I only close my eyes enough and really just try hard enough and really bring it? Like, what do you mean, know God through Jesus, especially now after the cross? How do Christians know, know God through Jesus? It seems kind of weird. How, how do I do that? What does that look like? And this is where Jesus' words in the Gospel of John in chapter 10 also come into play. And Jesus says this in John 10. I'll show it to you up here. You can look in your Bible if you want to. But John 10, 27, he says this. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. He's saying, the people who know me follow me. Like, they do the things that I say. He's saying, the sheep hear me, the people who follow me, they hear me, I know who they are, I know them, and they follow, they just do. Follow is a cleaner word for they obey, it doesn't violate my will as much, follow or obey, same thing, they'll do what I say. So here's the point, we know God through Jesus by what we do, not what we know. We know God through Jesus by what we do, not what we know. Let me put it this way. My wife and I have been married for almost, well, yeah, it'll be 18 years. Hold on. <clears throat> 19 years. <laughs> it just goes, it's like a day, you know, it's so wonderful. Okay, anyway, for 19 years in May, we'll be married for 19 years. That's not the point of the message, but now we all know that. All right, you can help me remember that. Anyway, so we've been married for a while. Now, here's the thing. As I walked into our marriage, I came in with certain habits and backgrounds and priorities that were ingrained in me and that just were part of uh, my sinful nature and part of whatever. Like, I came in with a certain set of habits and values and behavior, intended to, and she came into marriage with her set of stuff and all that. And in the process, we kind of become one, all that, right? One of the things that I came into the marriage with is that I was super clean and she was not. Okay. The other way around, maybe might be more accurate. I was not, I did not develop at nearly the same level of my cleaning habits as my wife. And so Jen comes in and her habits of cleanliness are different than mine. Is that a good way to put it? Along the way, I learned that it would probably be a good idea for me to shape up a little bit. Okay? And for me to begin to learn how my wife feels loved. So along the way, I begin to vacuum the house way more often than I'd ever done before. Like once a year is awesome. Before, not going to happen now, and rightly so. And so now, I'll tell you what happens now. Like now, we've had kids to do all the work. It's awesome. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, for me, I, I, am, I am cleaning and involved in vacuuming and mop whenever way more often. And in the process, here's what happens to me. As I'm vacuuming, as I'm mopping, as I'm doing that kind of stuff, not only are we getting a clean floor, but I am learning to know my wife through doing, not just by knowing. And my heart is changed toward her. Because this act does not just clean the floor, this is love your wife. 
And I don't love my wife just by knowing how to do it. I love her by doing it. And how do I know God through Jesus? Not by knowing him, just mentally, but by doing the things that he wants me to do. And in the doing, my heart is transformed and turned to know him in a way that it's not otherwise. When Jesus says, take up your cross daily, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. If I were actually to do that, if I were to deny myself and say, as I'm heading to work, today isn't about me, God. This is about the people I work with. This is about my children who I'm taking care of. This is about my spouse who is interested in my affection. How can I serve them the best? If I'm denying myself and the love for myself first, taking up my cross, bearing the weight of that pain, okay, I don't get what I want when I get home. It's not about me when I get home. It's about my kids, it's about my family. It's about the people I work with, the people I work for. It's about my clients. It's about, it's about our community. It's about the people who are outside of faith in Jesus Christ. If I'm taking the weight of that and bearing that, there's something that happens in my soul that changes me to know God. And what is it that happens? What happens in that moment is that is where, in the obedience of the will and the submission of the will to the Father through Jesus' words, that I know God. That is where we are transformed. When all of a sudden we love our enemies, we pray for those who persecute us. Why would I do that? I would only do that if Jesus, who is God in the flesh, says, my sheep who know my voice, they follow me. And you can have a relationship with God. What is that moment that you experience when all of a sudden you forgive? You've, you've had this moment where you've extended grace to someone and you have been kind of transformed. What is that? Not only is it an emotional catharsis inside your soul, you could, if we're just a humanist, we could say oh, that's a good human thing to do. My argument would be, no, no, no. There is a deep thread that is woven in your humanity that is something we call the image of God. God has made you in his image and as you submit your will to him through Jesus' words, you connect to that thread and you become more human than you ever thought you could be. That is where real life happens. You connect to something deeper through obedience to Jesus' words. How can I know the God of the universe? It's not some spiritual, mystical, supernatural understanding of this God and just light enough candles and pray enough and listen to the right music and have some kind of emotional moment. Sometimes those things happen, that's fine. But where the rubber meets the road is we know people by doing, not just by knowing. Right? It's the way it works. And so I have to ask the question, Personally, what is my rhythm of knowing Jesus? Like, if this statement is true, I have to reverse engineer it. If I don't know what Jesus wants, I can't do the things that he wants. Man, that's fairly simple. So there has to be an element of knowing. I can't just do whatever. So there has to be an element of knowing. And so I have to ask the question at a very individual and personal level, do I, do I even know what Jesus wants? Like, Am I exposing myself to him by engaging him in the gift of the scriptures? 
particularly in the Gospels, to learn how Jesus walked and lived and interacted. Like, how can I do that? What does it look like individually for me as a Christian, if that's where you land, to engage with Jesus and his words and his teachings and to follow him? Corporately, for us, we're taking this series, God for the Grown-Up, it's really one of two bigger parts. And the second part is coming next week. And the second part is this. We're going to be spending eight weeks looking at a panels of Jesus' life. We're calling it Friend of Sinners. For eight weeks, we're going to be dropping into the Gospel of Luke. Why? Because we say we're developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ at Grace Point Church. Well, if we're going to do that, we actually should, on a regular rhythm, stay in the Gospels and follow Jesus and his teachings and his life. And so for eight weeks, we're going to drop in, not just because we need to fill the calendar, but because I want for you the very thing that I'm talking to you about now. I want you to experience God through the person of Jesus and to see how Jesus, as a friend of sinners, interacted with the world around him. For eight weeks, we're going to be there. This series, God for the Grown-Up, I hope has been some layer of an encouragement for you that you don't need to have a childlike God to have a childlike faith. And as I said at the beginning, and hear me on this as I finish, if you have a childlike God, you will not have faith for long. A childlike God will not last in an adult world. And so let me encourage you, wherever you are and whatever level of questions you have, let me encourage you, ask your questions, okay? Listen, ask your questions. Do not be afraid to ask the questions about what you believe about who God is. Don't be afraid to do that. We need you. We need you to wrestle with the questions of the faith. And here's here's the last thing I'm going to say, and we're going to transition. Not only do we need to have a conception of God who can handle our adult questions, I also want you to know that God became a grown-up. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Jesus grew into a grown-up. And here's what you, you know. As he was a grown-up, he walked into a city that was planning to torture and violently murder him. Knowing it was going to happen and walking in. And so, if you ever get a conception of, of Christians or Jesus as some kind of soft, weak, like touchy feely, just be kind and love each other and sing happy songs and rainbow, rainbows and unicorns like all day long, if you ever have that conception of the faith of Christianity, that is wrong. I just want to tell you that. It's, it's incomplete, at, at least. Jesus showing incredible courage, says, God, I don't want to go here, but I'm going to. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to go, and I'm going to walk into a city that will torture me to death. Because that's what love does. Here I go. And then he says, hey, by the way, for people who want to know me, follow me. And do the same thing. And so this morning, as a church and as Christians, throughout the centuries again, we're joining in a tradition we get to share in what we call communion. And communion is the moment where we eat and drink together. 
representations or symbols of Jesus' body that was broken on the cross for us. In a few moments, you're going to be eating a piece of bread, perhaps, or drinking the cup, the grape juice we have here, perhaps. Maybe you'll be participating with us. And in that, why do we do that? So that we're reminded, this is, this is, what, it, this is what it's like, right? This is what it's about. Giving of ourselves, being broken for the benefit of others. Like, this is Christianity at its core. This is the cross and what that means. And so Jesus... This focused God who helps the little five-year-old us understand what absolute love is. Jesus came that we might know God. Jesus came to walk into Jerusalem, to have his body broken on that cross for you and for me. So number one, if you don't know that, Jesus, let's have the conversation. Let's keep going with that. Number two, we have a chance this morning as a church to celebrate that. And here's how we do that at GPC. We're gonna, I'm going to invite the communion ushers to come up and worship team in just a moment. And anyone who is a Christian, anyone who's declared their faith in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate with us.